Hello, and welcome to the Let's Talk Bitcoin show. For those of you who are new, Let's Talk Bitcoin is a discussion show about the ideas, people, and projects building the new digital economy, and as we like to call it, the future of money. Basically, we're fascinated with this technology that's powering this blockchain revolution, and we talk about just about every element of it except for the price. Since we started this conversation back in 2013, a whole world of blockchains and tokens have sprung up alongside Bitcoin. And we talk about those too, as real-world events help us to see what's real and what's just clever marketing. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions on topics we should be thinking about, send an email to adam at ltbshow.com. And a big thanks to our sponsors on this episode, purse.io, brave.com, and etoro.com. This is also the first episode to be broadcast as part of the new Coindesk Podcast Network. Haven't heard of that before? Don't feel bad. That's because I'm still in the process of inventing it as editor of Coindesk's new podcast and audio division. For now, all you need to know is that you can find new episodes of Let's Talk Bitcoin at Coindesk.com every Sunday morning, in addition to the normal RSS feeds and front page posts you're probably used to. And as an aside, if you're a podcaster or a pundit with a standout show that you think is perfect for Coindesk's audience of investors, send an email to adamlevine at coindesk.com and let's talk about it. With all that said, in today's episode, we're jumping straight back into the deep end with a wide-ranging conversation about mass adoption, cargo cults, synthetic shorts, and more. Enjoy the show. Hey, folks, I'm Adam B. Levine, and on today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Stephanie Murphy. Hi. Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. And Andreas M. Antonopoulos. What? Thanks to all the hosts and to you, the listeners, for sitting in on today's discussion. Well, we've been taking the last month or so off. Cryptocurrency and blockchains are more in the news today and in more interesting and diverse ways than really any time I can remember. In the U.S. and many other countries, the proposed Libra stablecoin is causing currency monopoly anxieties as Facebook and other Libra association companies find stiff resistance and more than a little ridicule from regulators and politicians worldwide. Meanwhile, the last six months have seen multiple central bankers or former central bankers acknowledge both the threat and opportunity of cryptocurrency and blockchain systems to their, quote, ongoing management of financial networks. And most recently, we've seen an explosion of official interest in blockchain projects seemingly approved at the highest levels of the Chinese Communist Party. They recently revealed 500 blockchain projects, 90 of them being built by supply giant Alibaba, most of them enterprise-related, which have been registered with Chinese regulators and are underway today. In the big picture, all of these are indicators that these distributed systems we're so passionate about now are being taken very seriously. And while this might not be the type of adoption we eventually imagine, I have a hard time seeing it as anything other than that, adoption. But the question today is, is all adoption good? And what are we seeing that's actually being adopted anyways? And do any of those questions even matter in the big picture? We keep saying mainstream adoption, but effectively what we're seeing is mainstream co-option. That is the essence of mainstream adoption, especially for a disruptive technology. This technology is not being adopted for its attributes or benefits or all of its disruptive potential. It's being co-opted, and there is a desperate attempt to strip it of all of those things and make it conform to business as usual. I think that is eventually going to fail because what it's doing is demonstrating precisely the features that are disruptive by failing to adopt. So Libra is a perfect example. Libra is not permissionless and it was launched and permission was denied. 
So the question we keep coming back to, is that okay? And I think that's what Adam was asking at the opening of the segment. You know, we had AOL, which brought the internet to a lot of people who didn't have it before, but it was a watered-down version of the internet. Yet, it made the internet go mainstream. And the people who really wanted to use the non-watered-down version of the internet, it was still available to them. They just had to know where to go and what to do. And so is cryptocurrency going to be like that? I think it probably will. I think so too. I mean, it is a good thing. It's a good thing because what it's doing is it's promoting the idea to a mainstream audience. And it's promoting it by trying to replace it with a watered-down alternative. But eventually what happens is people experience the watered-down alternative and see its weaknesses, its limitations, etc. They eventually learn or stumble upon the real thing and all of its potential and excitement. We've seen that happen in practice. In fact, in 2013, I predicted that eventually I would have someone come to me who would say, uh, I'm a developer in blockchain, and I just found out about Bitcoin. That's almost hard to imagine. <laughs> in 2016, I went to Singapore, and I did a presentation in Singapore, and it was a Bitcoin presentation. And there was a young kid in the audience who came to me and said, I've been a blockchain developer for a year and a half, and I just discovered Bitcoin, and I'm so excited to listen to your talk. And I'm like, oh, okay, slow down. Tell me everything. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he described how he had uh, gone to a Bank of America presentation about blockchain, and they had done an entire presentation about blockchain without ever mentioning the dirty B word, Bitcoin. It wasn't even blockchain as an open public blockchain. It was all DLT, federated, consensus, Byzantine, fault-tolerant bullshit, enclosed, permissioned systems. And not once was the origin of this technology mentioned. He then ended up working for a year and a half trying to build proof of concepts with Hyperledger and Tendermint and all kinds of permissions technologies, found the technology to not really give any benefits and to not have much performance, and then discovered why all of this had been built. Because every time he searched for blockchain, all of this stuff from mastering Bitcoin and other books on the topic kept popping up. And he's like, what is this Bitcoin? What the hell does Bitcoin have to do with blockchain? That's an unbelievable story, but it kind of makes the point. I think what you're saying, Andreas, is it sounds like the mainstream co-option is a gateway drug. Yeah, exactly. It, the blockchain is a gateway drug to Bitcoin. Also, I now use the term blockchain in a variety of ways, which has pissed off a bunch of people. But I like to make a distinction between what I call open public blockchain and DLT. DLT is the essence of my blockchain versus bullshit conversation. And when you say DLT, you mean distributed ledger technology? Yeah, distributed ledger technology, private, closed, controlled permissions, not borderless, not censorship resistant, not immutable, not neutral, not open. The unblockchain. The unblockchain, <laughs> right. But you know, I've redefined effectively, I'm using the term blockchain when I talk about open public blockchains and the things that have the characteristics of being open, borderless, neutral, censorship-resistant, permissionless, immutable, etc. And the other things I just call DLT, or database consultant technology, right? Which is a rebranding of database consultants into blockchain consultants. But all they're doing is building these 
closed systems. But it doesn't matter. Those are gateway drugs too. And what happens is they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars to train developers in how this technology works. And no matter what they teach them in terms of architecture and principles and all of that, and they build centralized systems, they're still going to learn key management, cryptography fundamentals, digital signature, elliptic curve. They're going to learn about Merkle trees. They're going to learn about hashing. They're going to learn about fault-tolerant systems, some peer-to-peer technologies. They're going to learn about consensus algorithms, and eventually they're going to stumble on the open internet of money and all of the open public blockchains and go, aha, so that's why this matters. So one of the things about kind of this series of stories really is, as you said earlier, Andreas, the Libra had to ask for permission, right? And that permission has basically been very hard to find. And this is something that's interesting about cryptocurrency in that it really does, in its more interesting incarnations, constitute what looks a lot like an unstoppable technology. But when you have a company like Facebook sitting behind it, even though they've taken you know multiple steps, basically, to say, well, Libra isn't us. We're just one of a whole bunch of different multinational companies that are involved with this and we're contributing, but it's not us. Well, they're still getting treated as far as kind of the political repercussions are concerned and as far as the regulatory repercussions are concerned as if they were. So, you know, you compare that with the other kind of parties that I talked about during the introduction. You've got the U.S. government, you know, you've got central bankers kind of around the world in various forms and fashions, and you got the Chinese Communist Party. And all of these are basically permission giver type organizations, right? Like they're the ones where if you are going to ask for permission, you have to go and ask them. And while in China, we're seeing a lot of kind of interest on the blockchain side, almost none of it is on the money side of that equation. The central bank there has sort of claimed that as, a, as an area that they may go into. And while they're encouraging everyone to do you know, blockchain-related projects and projects which use blockchains or tokens, what it seems like cryptocurrency is best suited to disrupt is currency. And yet in all of these situations, it seems like that's the one thing it will not be allowed to disrupt if permission is required. That's why Satoshi didn't ask for permission and had the anonymity to make sure that they wouldn't be forced to, you know, ask for permission and be denied. And the, the reason why governments and regulatory agencies and whoever else, anyone in power, wants people to ask for permission before introducing a new technology or doing anything, really, is so that they can say no, of course. <laughs> so, of course, if you ask for permission, you're going to get denied. Or you're going to get demanded to change something or, you know, do it this way. No, not like that. I don't know. Is anyone really surprised that the permission is not being given when it's asked for? I think, you know, it's also just a function of those with power will never let people even doing the right thing have two things. And that's privacy, which we all kind of understand. But the attack that Bitcoin gives and that blockchains provide that's sort of a passive sub-assumption that because we're native to the internet, we just presuppose, but don't even realize how radical it is. There isn't even a mechanism at the system level distinguishing where a transaction is occurring geographically from one location to the other. And I think nothing freaks out power more than the inability to not even control what's happening, where it's happening, but even recognize where it's occurring. And so it's not just the privacy aspects of public blockchains that are what means they'll never approve something like a Libra, but more specifically, Libra was allowing international payments. And it was sort of the two-pronged approach of trying to pretend to be like Bitcoin that I think freaked them out. 
there's never an actor in power that'll let you do what you want without them knowing about it and then let you go somewhere else and do something. And Bitcoin attacks both of those things at the same time. And it's an inherent attribute of even the proof of stake systems and all these other things that we consider uh, public blockchains. It's an affront to power. And it's why if you have those characteristics, you'd never get approval from them. Yeah, that's a great point, Jonathan. This goes back to feudalism, maybe even further back from that. But those in power always want to have like some geographical area where they they say, okay, this is my dominion. I control everything that goes on in this land. And if you're inside my borders, it's like your parents. Like if you're under my roof, you're going to live by my rules. On a bigger scale, that's feudalism. And then it's nation states and then other types of governments that uh, extend their power even further than that. And then if you don't like it, you can leave. But as soon as Bitcoin allows you to move your money out of the country, they're like, wait, that's illegal. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> actually you can't leave. <laughs> You're not allowed to do that. <laughs> because borders define jurisdictions. Jurisdictions define the extent of nation state power. And if you create a system that is borderless, it is transnational, which means it transcends the jurisdiction and control and power of nation states. And the essence of the internet and the essence of the internet of money and the essence of Bitcoin and open public blockchains is that ability to be borderless. It doesn't mean that it simply crosses borders. It means that it doesn't even see borders, as you said, Jonathan. And that is terrifying to a state that defines everything based on geographical jurisdiction. And every time as a nomad, I travel or try to interact with a state, I'm struck by the fact that Everything is anchored on geography, and it's very difficult to answer very simple questions like, where do you live? What is your address? Yes, but which state is your company in? Which state is my company in? Uh, Aantonop.com. That's where my company is. Yes, but where do you work? Aantonop.com. Yeah, but where do you get your revenue from? Amazon.com? <laughs> and Aantonop.com. There is no geography. None whatsoever. And yet every interaction with a state or any organization that is regulated by the state, is informed by the state, is trying to operate within the constraints of the state, is anchored in geography. What we're talking about is systems that have deliberately yanked that anchor to geography, have become truly borderless and virtual. And they hate that because it removes all of their ability of control and power. I'm sure they try to shame you with uh, judgmental looks too when you say, well, oh, I don't really have an address. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, that, that means it's not a real company, sir. What's interesting is that the answer to that is really simple. It's jurisdiction shopping. Oh, but they don't like that. Of course they don't like that. And so what? one of the other democratizing aspects of open public blockchains, and especially Bitcoin, is that it gives the power of jurisdiction shopping to the average individual, a power that until now was reserved only for very, very large and rich multinational companies. So you can be a one-person freelancer multinational company, and you can choose your, um, your state and your country of residence and jurisdiction according to what you want, you know, and sometimes all it takes is, at the very least, renting a mailbox, and if you want to really go over the top, you rent an office that you visit once a year. And I think that this is where all these DLTs and quote unquote private blockchains fail, is they keep thinking they can compete with privacy or with uh, transnational payments or all these little areas where 
the government just won't let you innovate, not just America, just any government. I like to tell people that decentralization can compete against literally nothing. Um, <laughs> and what I mean by that is I 100% believe that I will die. My last breath could be that you can write it on my tombstone. And that's wait, the- wait, tombstones. We'll just bury you in 17 different jurisdictions. And people are like, <laughs> where, where is Jonathan's tombstone? Well, <laughs> but it's because the, the inherent costs associated with decentralization are always less efficient. They're always less effective, but for nothing. So, you know, privacy, no one can do privacy and have the government allow it trans geographical understandings of the world there's no government that'll let you do it there's no centralized system to which you can achieve that characteristic and such nothing will exist but for if you do it in a decentralized way so every time a private blockchain says well technically there's nothing preventing us from manifesting this attribute of a bitcoin of an ethereum of a monero i go yeah but it's not going to exist because the only way to manifest that is to be decentralized Right. The simple answer is technically, yes. Architecturally, no. And and this is about architecture, right? That is the topology of the system, which people don't see as technology, but technology can manifest topology if you have the right structure behind it. Topology is unique and separate from the actual technology. The thing about these systems is not that they're disruptive technologies, they're disruptive topologies. The essence here is that there are technologies that enable you to implement disruptive topologies, meaning that decentralization is what the technology enables, decentralization as a topology, right? And if you have the necessary technology, you can, and you can also not implement the appropriate topology. But if you do implement the appropriate topology, that topology then manifests all kinds of interesting characteristics, such as immutability, censorship, resistance, neutrality, borderless operation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all of the interesting things, those emerge from topology. Now, you can get to that topology by implementing technology in a certain way, but you have to understand that technology is the means, topology is the secondary meta-means, and the end is borderless, neutral, censorship, resistance, immutable, characteristics that emerge from the topology. And people think that this is a disruptive technology. It's not. The technology itself isn't particularly disruptive or even particularly innovative. It's the combination of five or six existing technologies that pre-existed Bitcoin in a way that allows a very, very, very virulent, disruptive, and unstoppable topology to emerge. What all of these companies are doing trying to mainstream this technology is adopt the technology without the topology. As a result, it's worthless. It's pointless. It's simply an inefficient mashup of technologies that don't manifest anything. So, Andreas, basically what you're saying is that uh, like the technology in this case is disruptive in that it resolves a limiting factor, right? It makes it so that thing that's preventing you from doing the disruptive topology, well, now that's not the problem any longer. But you still need to do the disruptive topology. And I think we could look around at different cryptocurrencies or blockchains that are out there and see many that use the technology but have not succeeded in creating that disruptive topology that you're talking about. Exactly. And we can see this in other technologies, too. You know, you've got the technology of 
drive-by wire cars where effectively the the controls, the sensors, and the actuators are mediated by a computer and not directly linked to each other. You've got direct drive electric motors that allow you to do very interesting things with controlling traction torque and things like that minutely by a computer. Great. All of those are interesting technologies. You mash them up together with great sensors and what you create is a very disruptive technology, which is autonomous drivable computers or autonomous mobile computers, which are not cars anymore. Again, you could take all of those technologies and you could build a very boring minivan. Or you could see beyond that and effectively say, no, the essence of this is not a car. The essence of this is a computer. If you've ever driven a Tesla, for example, what you feel like is, oh, this is an iPad with wheels. Or, or it's an Android with wheels. The essence of that car is the computer, not the f***ing wheels. That's the same thing here. You can take the same technologies and mash them up to make something incredibly boring. Just because other people use those technologies to build something incredibly disruptive in topology or in instantiation, as with the self-driving cars and things like that, doesn't mean that if you take the same technologies and mash them up, you'll get the same result. I really think of this fundamentally as a cargo cult. What's a cargo cult? Oh, I know what it is, but tell us anyway. (laughs) I'll give you a tiny bit of context really, really quickly. But during the Pacific phase of World War II, especially the Americans deployed an enormous amount of logistics all across the Pacific to create a chain of islands that could link together in order to basically invade Japan. That chain of logistics involved going into a whole bunch of Polynesian Pacific islands that had never seen white people, landing cargo planes, saying hello to the natives, and then building airstrips, communication towers, and bringing in more and more cargo planes. So suddenly these natives, all of the indigenous people of the Polynesian islands and uh, Pacific islands are now getting manufactured goods that are coming from the sky. And of course, they develop a religion around this. (laughs) They see this and they cannot understand and they have no perspective of the logistics and manufacturing economy, society and culture that is producing steel blades and shovels and woven clothes and all of these goods that are magical and essentially free and coming from, from the sky. Having no former concept of any of these things and no context as to how these things manifest, they see only the symbology of planes landing and people waving around semaphores and lights and using radios. Immediately after the war, they withdraw all of these things. The cargo planes stop coming. They dismantle all of the air bases. And what's left is the religion. So they start building bamboo planes and bamboo air traffic control towers and simulations of wireless radios made out of coconut headsets that don't actually work. And that's called a cargo cult. And it's basically the deification of a supply chain and then using all of the symbols, but none of the context. The bottom line is that they don't understand at the time where all of this is coming from. They have no context as to why this stuff is happening. All they see is the end result. And in order to manifest that end result, because there's no understanding of the underlying process, they start essentially invoking all of the symbols in ritual. So doing dances that look like semaphore waving, lighting signal fires, 
trying to recreate the symbols of air traffic control in the hopes that the gods will bring back the cargo planes. Of course, waving around all of the symbols without understanding the context is not going to bring back the cargo. In the blockchain space, what's happening is all of these companies that are steeped in centralized mentality, that are trying to incrementally improve on their processes but not disrupt anything, they're trying to maintain status quo and business as usual, they see Bitcoin, they see that there's a lot of excitement and interest around it, they're hearing all of the hype, but they don't understand any of the context of why it works. So what they do is they implement all of the symbols of it, you know, chains, blocks, digital signatures, hash trees, etc., without any of the actual essence, which is the decentralization. And then they wonder why the benefits aren't appearing in the sky. And I hope that monologue wasn't offensive to indigenous people. It's culture clash. It's not meant to undermine their culture. It's just simply two cultures conflicting with a complete different set of context. I have a spiel that I like to give about DLT. It's basically when you hear the cacophony of, of birds chirping and you talk about Darwinianly cohesive structures, you have a bird chirping a song that has no idea what it means. And in another bird that's attractive to that song that has no idea what that song represents. And both birds are chirping a song pretending they're another species, but because they're both doing it, they're able to match. So DLT is basically people who are in no way building a blockchain selling to people who in no way actually want a blockchain, but think they want a blockchain. And so the reason why there's a market is like birds chirping songs to the fake species that still cohesively meet, that this whole DLT nonsense is just a way for people who are pretending they're blockchain to get people who don't actually want blockchain. Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here with Matt from Purse.io for another sponsored minute. Hey Matt. Hey Adam. At Purse, our mission is making crypto useful. We believe that the value of Bitcoin goes up for everybody when we expand its use case as digital cash. At Purse, we enable Bitcoin users to buy anything on Amazon with their Bitcoin for big discounts. We also spend half our resources as a company developing open source tools to get Bitcoin into more hands and make Bitcoin easier to send and receive for everybody. These tools include the Bitcoin full node and SPV node, the Bitcoin wallet, and the multi-sig server. All these applications are under active development and they get better every day. Check out our documentation and library of introductory developer guides at Bitcoin.io. We can learn everything from cross-chain atomic swaps to building web-based Bitcoin tools with the Bitcoin library. To start saving today, visit purse.io. And for more information about Bitcoin, visit Bitcoin.io or just look it up on GitHub. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Adam. This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you in part by Brave. If you haven't heard about Brave yet, Brave is the web browser reimagined. Brave is built by a team of privacy-focused, performance-oriented pioneers of the web, like co-founder Brendan Eich, who previously co-founded Mozilla Firefox and created JavaScript. Brave gives you back control of your online privacy by shielding you from data-grabbing ads and trackers, all while allowing you to surf the internet up to six times faster than other browsers, saving you battery power and reducing your data costs. Simply put, Brave offers you the best user experience for browsing the internet today. So what are you waiting for? For the best webs and the smoothest internets, go to brave.com slash LTB. 
That's brave.com slash LTB. And of course, it's always free. Thanks for listening. Andres, one of my favorite examples you give is about the three-body problem and crypto. The three bodies, as you describe it, are the people, governments, and corporations, and how each are interplaying against one another and how they will use, misrepresent, or engage in blockchain and decentralized technologies. And I think the most interesting thing with Libra, when you talk about game theory, is we had a company pretending to be a person but really trying to achieve becoming a pseudo country. So it's this, you know, trying to inhabit three levels of the body problem while misrepresenting and engaging in different levels of different shelling points at the same time. And now what the Chinese government has just done is engage in another level, a superpositional state of the three body problem, which is they're pretending to use technology made by the people But if you look at their ranking system, it's all proof of stake systems that have a federation that the Chinese government can call up and kneecap that are the top 10 protocols. And they're pretending they're using companies that are doing proof of concepts that happen to be majority owned by people who are in the Chinese Communist Party. What we had with Libra is the attempt in the West for a company to pretend it was the people trying to turn into a government. And what we have in the East is a government pretending that companies are using technology made by the people in blockchain. I love that analysis. I think it's the same philosophical moral affront to people (laughs) who are Bitcoiners, (laughs) but it's almost beautiful in how distinctly disgusting it is. Honestly, I think Libra is even more dangerous than the CCP project. So we have yet to see the fruits of the products that they bring to bear, but I think that Facebook will have a tough row to hoe, whereas China is vertically integrated. And that's the problem with democracies is they're they're more anti-fragile, but dictatorships are always more efficient. Where Facebook may be the greater challenge over time, I think whatever we, we fear will manifest in Libra in a worst case scenario will come about years and years before that point with what the CCP is doing. I mean, in the case of a pure dictatorship, that's that's definitely true, although China has become kind of a hybrid corporate dictatorship because many of these companies actually have significant power, even though I think they're controlled in many ways by the central government. Ridiculously enough, it's actually more decentralized than Facebook. If you take the expression code as law, and understand, you know, the context in which Lawrence Lessig introduced that concept in the 90s. The basic idea here is that when you operate in a virtual space that operates under rules of software like Facebook, where the policies are implemented in software, the filtering is implemented by AI, et cetera, et cetera, you are operating in a lawless environment, or rather you are operating in an environment where you have no rights. The difference between operating in the physical space and an environment of physical law is that you have established inalienable rights. And even in a place like China, there is some due process and rights afforded to some people under certain circumstances. Even in the harshest dictatorship, there is some wriggle room. But in a situation where you have a law enforced by code through a completely centralized organization like Facebook, you have no rights. There is no right to appeal. There is no due process. There is no 
right to be informed of the charges. You are simply deplatformed or censored or silenced or demonetized, of course, which will be once they have monetization, and there is no recourse. So the code is law environment of a single multinational corporation with 2 billion users is a virtual dictatorship of absolute control. I think it's worse. And even more importantly, it will still be infiltrated and surveilled and feeding data to the dictatorships in the countries where it resides. So you're going to get all of the disadvantages of the dictatorships cracking down on you and the straitjacket of rules of CODA's law. A little bit before the show, Adam, we were talking about the um, loyalty pledges in China and how the first blockchain application that China decided to spotlight was how party officials and members can recertify their commitment to the party using a blockchain. Let's be clear here. I don't think that they chose to highlight this one. I think it was more along the lines of they released 500 and this one particularly stood out as a, as a kind of glaring example of both kind of the crazy way in which the blockchain is being used and also whether or not this actually has any blockchain advantages or if it's kind of as you guys have been talking about, just sort of like a mimic play to, you know, almost for uh, enhanced marketability. Well, I think if you want to think about it in the most comparable way to the West, I believe Twitter is not readily accessible in China. And so the average technophile in China doesn't have a way to meaninglessly virtue signal their commitment to what's politically correct. And so doing this in some trivial fake blockchain, which is another way to describe Twitter's backend, is basically the equivalent of that in China. So I think that just from a technological parity standpoint, it's about time China had the ability to virtually preen and um, self-destruct culturally that uh, Twitter has allowed in the West, in the East. So I look forward to how this technology will grow and adapt and become as toxic as Twitter. Well, I think what we should do is create equivalent technologies here in the United States. So it's relatively trivial to create an Ethereum dApp that allows you to do two things. One, it allows you to at least once a year do the Pledge of Allegiance digitally so that some people can take a knee and some people can bow their head, put their hand over their heart and digitally sign their Pledge of Allegiance. See, Andreas, you're not you're not thinking sophisticated enough. What I want to do is unlock all of my Pledge of Allegiances for all of my morning announcements so I could just pay the transaction fee once on all four years of high school's Pledge of Allegiances <laughs> and then have the blocks confirm at the period when the Pledge of Allegiance is requested. I think it's very important to recognize the fact that the external optics of a country, any country, are completely different from the internal optics of a country. And you don't really get that until you've either grown up in more than one culture, you're multicultural, or you've grown up uh, bilingual, bicultural, by country, whatever, or you've traveled a lot to other countries and then done immersion. The bottom line is that when I grew up and learned about Greek history and then read it from a different perspective, I got to find out that a lot of things were very, very different. Then you come to America and you see a very different culture. But internally, the thing that appears horrific to us in terms of conformist kind of dictatorship thinking is the Pledge of Loyalty to the Communist Party. But the thing is, we have rituals like that here in the US. We simply do not recognize them. And at the same time, we celebrate them and think they are great demonstrations of unity and culture and belonging and community. Well, guess what? 
People who live in China think that pledging allegiance to the unifying force of the People's Party is absolutely about spirit and loving your country and unity and community. They don't think it's disgusting, oppressive behavior by a dictatorship. That perspective is really, really important. The problem is that when blockchains are used for exactly that kind of coercive surveillance, norm enforcing and conformity reasons here in the US, not only will we not recognize it, but we will suddenly discover a very big chunk of the population will gladly and cheeringly adopt those. So I appreciate that we've come full circle on this, but I suppose the point that I'm actually interested in here, beyond sort of the the cultural impressions, is this actually a valid use for a blockchain? Because again, what you're talking about here is effectively you know, it's a it's a proof of existence type of thing where the goal is to make this available. But it's not like this can't be done in a centralized system. It's not like there's anybody who's, you know, within China who's trying to stop the Chinese Communist Party from, you know, maintaining that database in a quasi public fashion. So that's that's, I think, the thing that I'm wondering about here is like it's a bullshit chain. Yeah, I mean, there's there's no there's no there there for this. I think the most offensive word in that statement was they're using a decentralized system because If you look at the way that the markets have gone, China is embracing proof-of-stake systems with federates that they know or can work with. And if you look at how consensus is formed, all of the proof-of-work blockchains, also known as blockchains, are leaving China, and all of the proof-of-stake blockchains are migrating or staying in China. So even when they're saying we're using blockchain in the best double-speak way, I don't think what we think decentralized means is what they mean. And, you know, when we say corporation, it doesn't mean the same thing in China because Huawei is not exactly not the Chinese government at the same time that it is. So I think what we're seeing is a more fundamental co-option of what blockchain even means in China in the same way that when we invented the Internet in the West, they co-opted that to mean an entirely different thing to their own people. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a very apt comparison. It fails the fundamental tests. I try to keep these consistent. Some people have called them the five pillars. I've called them the five pillars too, but sometimes it's six, sometimes it's seven, sometimes it's eight. So, you know, the pledge of uh, loyalty to the CCP is based on the blockchain. Is that blockchain open, borderless, neutral, censor-persistent, immutable, permissionless? Is it? No, none of those things. And therefore, it is a bullshit chain. It is a database masquerading as a decentralized system in order to divert from the fact that it is, in fact, the opposite. Without those five pillars, the integrity of the system crumbles. Right, because it has all of the technology and none of the topology of decentralization, and therefore none of the emergent characteristics that we consider vital to the purpose of open public blockchains, which is the promotion of individual control, freedom, and choice. None of those exist. Once those don't exist, it doesn't matter what you call it. The thing is, the name is not the thing. Today's show is brought to you in part by eToro. eToro is one of the largest trading platforms in the world, with over $1 trillion in trading volume on the platform per year. U.S. customers can trade the most popular crypto assets with low spreads, no commission, and no hidden fees. eToro has spent more than 10 years making sophisticated trading features simple to use on any device with their intuitive app. If you're not ready to trade yet, practice building your portfolio with the eToro virtual trading feature. Best of all, 
you can connect with the 12 million other eToro traders around the world to discuss trading, charts, and all things crypto. So why not check it out? Create your account today at eToro.ltbshow.com. That's E-T-O-R-O dot L-T-B-show.com. Okay, so this has been a great conversation. Um, we have one more thing I wanted to get to, which is really just kind of like a weird aside. A couple of weeks ago, Coindesk ran a story that is entitled Trump administration popped 2017 Bitcoin bubble, ex-CFTC chair says. And the money quote from this is from Christopher uh, Giancarlo, who left the CFTC at the end of his five-year term as chairman in April. The quote is, one of the untold stories of the past few years is that the CFTC, the Treasury, the SEC, and the National Economic Council director at the time, Gary Cohn, believed that the launch of Bitcoin futures would have the impact of popping the Bitcoin bubble, and it worked. Let's say Bitcoin is $1,000, and you think a year from now it's going to be $800. But you don't have any Bitcoin, so you can't sell it in order to make the gains now and then buy it back at 800. Like if you have Bitcoin, you might say, I think it's going to go down, but I'm going to buy the dip, right? So what you're going to do is sell it at 1,000, take the cash, wait. When it dips to 800, you buy it back at 800, you've made $200 worth of profit. But the only way you can do that is if you actually have the Bitcoin. A short is where you don't have the Bitcoin. So what you do is you borrow it from someone else. So you say, hey, Adam, can you lend me a Bitcoin? I'm going to give it back to you in a year. And Adam says, sure, I'll lend it to you, but I'm going to charge you a small interest rate. You're like, no problem. I'll pay 1% on it for a year. You wouldn't do that. For obvious reasons, this is why Bitcoin doesn't really have shorts. I borrow it. I sell it at 1,000, and then I wait. When it dips to 800, I buy a Bitcoin at 800 and give it back to Adam and pay him the 1% rental fee for borrowing it. And effectively, I've made $200 by doing that, even though I didn't actually have Bitcoin to buy the dip. If everything goes according to your plan, which it sometimes doesn't. Yeah. The problem with a short is that it has infinite downside, meaning that if the price is 1000 the worst that can happen is it goes to zero and I've lost $1,000. But if I borrow a Bitcoin at 1000 and it goes to a million, 10 million, 100 million, there's no top. And I have to buy it back at whatever price it is to return it to Adam. My liability is unlimited, very dangerous. A naked short is where you don't even borrow it. <laughs> you actually treat it on paper only. And because it's never delivered, you just match longs versus shorts and cancel them out so that you only settle the difference. And that's effectively what the CBOE futures do, which are non-deliverable futures. The other thing that a naked short does that's different than a short is because you're not taking out the loan, because you don't ever actually touch the product until you purchase it to be delivered, you're basically introducing artificial supply. If the market cap of a product is 10 million shares, the thing that's unique about naked shorts is that through naked shorts, you could artificially have a supply of 11 million shares, which then affects the entire supply-demand curve because there's this mechanism that wasn't from the primary mechanism or issuer that introduced new synthetic supply. Yeah, this feels like fractional reserve lending. Is it similar to that? Absolutely. And that's the fundamental difference between the futures being traded by CBOE, which are called cash settlement futures, 
where you don't actually get the Bitcoin or return the Bitcoin. You simply uh, pay in dollars the difference in price or receive in dollars the difference in price. So no Bitcoin is actually held or traded at any point in time. Now, in order to implement that, organizations like CBOE have to have cash reserves to cover potential liabilities, which, of course, in this market is quite risky. That's the difference between that and, for example, the backed futures, I believe, which are Bitcoin settled, which means they actually have the Bitcoin and they will deliver that Bitcoin on demand. That's one of the major differences. Here's a brief disclaimer. People probably know I'm on the oversight committee for the Bitcoin reference rates and Bitcoin index at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, which is a parent company of CBOE. The reference rate that I'm on the oversight committee for is basically a price index. It's a price feed, just like the one you see on Bitcoin average. The only difference is it's an institutional price feed that is fed directly to traders. In order to build futures, you need a contractually agreed price on the day of delivery that is unambiguous, and all of the futures are based on this reference rate. I participated in that to make sure that the price that was represented on this index is not being manipulated by phantom trading and other things in the exchanges, and that's the role of the oversight committee to set the rules. It's public, it's open, our meetings are open. I have nothing to do with the futures or any of the other products built upon that. So that's my disclaimer, but I do have an association with the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, by the way. It's an unpaid position. What makes this story interesting isn't anything that the Chicago Mercantile Exchange did. It's not what the CME did. It's in understanding the thought process of regulators in America. Now, when you think about regulatory thought processes and how in this three-body understanding of the government, companies, and people, how we need to understand how the other operates, and when they do things that we think are positive, why it was that they did it. Adam, could you give the, the quote that the regulator said, which was the philosophy that informed why he did what he did? Quote, if you don't have that derivative, then all you've got are believers, and it's a believer's market, end quote. So he decided that the material consideration that led to the approval from the government, finally, for Bitcoin futures was not, oh, well, we don't have a good price feed, or, oh, there might be market manipulation, or, oh, I don't know if this thing is you know, a scam or this or that. It was, wow, the price is going up. Only the people who believe this thing is going to succeed are engaged in this market. Wow, it's making a lot of money. Wow, it's going up a lot. It's a really high-performing commodity. It may be the largest performance commodity class in the West. We need to create a way to pop that bubble. That bubble is going to be defined as a bubble because right now there isn't a way to synthetically short it. What we need is a way for sophisticated Wall Street to be able to short the hell out of this and collapse its price by the introduction of synthetic products. And so, hey, Bitcoin's succeeding. We're succeeding. Oh my God, the government's finally acknowledging us. Why are they acknowledging us? Because they wanted to blow wind against the sale. And it's, it's even more than just the CFTC. Again, it's the CFTC, the Treasury, the SEC, and the National Economic Council director all basically agreed on this, according to the quote. So when you think about, oh, well, when are we going to get a, an ETF? When are we going to get a this? When are we going to get a that? My best understanding of this quote is the moment we'll get an ETF is when it can hurt Bitcoin. The moment Bitcoin will be considered a currency is when doing so will hurt Bitcoin. I don't understand how you can look at this and be like, oh, it's only when you think that there's a problem 
that needs to be quote unquote corrected. These people aren't your friend. (laughs) And I just think it's so purely indicative of this type of mindset. You know what they say, when evil does evil, they don't hide it, they brag about it. And I think what we have here is the CFTC bragging. I'm no fan of naked shorts or synthetic instruments, but I do think that there is a basis here for understanding that one of the reasons Bitcoin has these extreme volatility bubble cycles is precisely because when FOMO erupts, when you have the price driving the price, there is no counter pressure. So you have basically an unbalanced market where the only pressure is up. It's not being traded on fundamentals. I don't think that in many cases, Bitcoin is being traded or any of the open public blockchains and cryptocurrencies being traded on fundamentals because we haven't yet developed enough of an economy to enough analytical tools to actually be able to discern fundamentals. So what we're getting is what's called price reflexivity, which means that the price is up today because the price was up yesterday and I think it will be up tomorrow. So the price is reflecting our sentiment of the price rather than any underlying fundamental. That doesn't mean there isn't a fundamental there. That means the market isn't trading based on it because it can't see it enough. Sure. I would just critique that. I don't think you trade on fundamentals. I think you invest on them. I th- trading is an activity where you're, you're doing something liquidly. Fundamental investing is a buy and hold strategy. So implicitly, you're not a trader. Absolutely. So the bottom line here is that most of the people who bought Bitcoin had no intention of doing investments, right? They were absolutely trading in order to trade up to a Lambo. You know, that's the sad truth of how the waves in in Bitcoin happen. It's our job to catch them and then say, okay, now that you're in, let me dissuade you of Lambos and talk about freedom and principles and fundamentals. But the bottom line is this. If you have a market where there are only believers, what happens is you get this FOMO-type response where the price climbs precipitously until the market loses its nerve. And that happens when even the most optimistic believers start feeling shaky. What happens then is the tiniest of movement will pop that bubble, as has happened before futures and shorts and things like that would be, simply because the sentiment suddenly deflates. And then as soon as you have a downward movement, the same price reflexivity works in reverse and you have a giant downward movement. The problem with that is that these bubbles get bigger than they should have because they overshoot on the optimism, and then they get a very big correction and undershoot on the pessimism. That's what happened in 2013. When you deal in absolutes, yes, there needs to be downward forces and upward forces, but when we're talking about how they went about it and the mechanisms and processes that they decided to do, you could have approved a physically held ETF that had a billion dollars equivalent in Bitcoin in there, and then should people be able to short that? You could have approved back two years ago. There are so many methods they could have done it with that were in alignment with actual structured, stable commodities market. But the way they went about it was the most American way possible, which is the fractional reserve. Oh, let's just infinitely create fake supplies. The whole reason Bitcoin works unlike gold is because there's a fixed, finite supply that cannot be manipulated. And the mechanism by which they decided to correct with a downward mechanism, Bitcoin, was to fundamentally break at an economic level, not at a technical level, that mechanism in Bitcoin. 
Let's talk about the risks of doing that. Because yes, it did pop the bubble. And in fact, what it's done since then, I think. Did you feel very consumer protected? Because I felt very protected from all of the money that I had. <laughs> very consumer protected. What it's done since then is it's constrained some of the more extreme bubble mechanics, meaning that the bubbles run out of steam faster because you start having contrarians shorting it, which means it's actually reduced volatility, which isn't a bad thing, I don't think. But here's the thing. It's incredibly risky to do naked shorts on a fixed supply intangible asset like Bitcoin that cannot be fractionally created and the supply is completely inelastic in terms of stock and flow as the model goes. You remember when I said that shorts have infinite downside? Now, imagine if you're CBOE and you honor futures and the price actually does resist all of that because of fundamentals and does shoot up even more dramatically. You reach a point where those futures become insolvent, meaning you can't actually deliver those short promises because there isn't enough cash to settle it certainly not within the CBOE, and then you need a bailout. Effectively, it's a very, very risky strategy because at the end of it, you do have to come up with the cash. And because the zero bound is absolute, but the top bound is infinite, when you're trading backwards and you're doing shorts, if you start losing, there's no limit to how much you can lose. If the theory of hyper-Bitcoinization is true, short futures will end up finding themselves circling a black hole of hyper-Bitcoinization, which ends up sucking the entire fiat value into that black hole, which of course causes insolvency of fiat. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. A big thanks to our sponsors at Purse.io, Brave.com, and eToro.com. Today's episode featured Andreas Antonopoulos, Stephanie Murphy, Jonathan Mohan, and Adam B. Levine. This episode was edited by Jonas and Adam, with music by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. Any questions or comments? Email adam at ltbshow.com. We'll see you next time.